If you have a Bible with you, uh, I want to invite you to find Acts chapter 10. All right, if you don't have a Bible, it's going to be on the screen as well. Acts chapter 10 is where we are. We are continuing in our series uh, that we have called The Not-So-New Way. All right, that's kind of a weird title for it. Uh, If you are newer, maybe you haven't heard the explanation for why we are calling it this. Uh, When Jesus came, he essentially inaugurated a new way of living. All right, a new way of connecting with God. Uh, But what he was pointing to and showing us is actually how God had originally intended mankind to live. All right, back on page one of the Bible. So even though it seemed very new to the people that Jesus was speaking to, uh, it actually, in a way, was the oldest and best way of living that had been around from the beginning. And Jesus was pointing back to that, saying, this is how we're called to live. This is how we're called to be in relationship with God. Uh, So we've been looking at what happened following Jesus' ministry. And if this new way of living or kind of old way of living, depending on how you look at it, uh, really took off or not. All right, so I'm not going to read uh, the passage to start today because we're actually going to be looking at all of chapter 10 and a little bit into chapter 11. And some of you guys are like, oh no. Like you're looking at the clock already and you're like, I, I really want to eat before one o'clock today. And don't worry, I, I'll, I'll paraphrase as we go through it, but it's just this big uh, story that I really don't think we can boil down anymore. We want to take the whole thing together. Uh, but this is what I would like to do. Uh, I would love for us to stand. If you are willing, if you're able, would you stand with us? Uh, and I, I want us to kind of just take some time and, and pray here together before we move on. All right. God, we... We want more of you. Lord, we want more of your way. We want more of your love. God, we want conviction this morning. God, we don't want to just take encouragement and love and push away the things that that maybe we really need, Lord. So we pray that you would just teach us, that you would speak to us, that you would lead us and guide us this morning. And God, that we would be changed. We would walk out of here a different person from when we walked in. Lord, we ask that in your name. Amen. All right, you can have a seat. Uh, Last week, we finished up looking at what we called kind of the conversion of Saul. Uh, That was in chapter 9. All right, and this was the transformation uh, of one of the early church's biggest enemies or persecutors into who will become one of the most influential leaders of the early church. All right, and as God is orchestrating this entire scene, he makes this statement to Ananias, we would have seen this last week, all right? The, Ananias was the follower of Jesus that God is convincing to go and pray for Saul. And he says this, Go, for Saul is my chosen instrument to take my message to the Gentiles and to kings as well as to the people of Israel. And this is a big deal. All right, back at the beginning of Acts, Jesus tells his followers, all right, this is in Acts 1.8, he says, you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere, in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. All right, and this wasn't a new idea. From the beginning, God had wanted to be in relationship with the entire world. But for a season, he had chosen this select group of people that he would work through, and that was the Israelites. And the problem was that they thought Uh, It would either stay that way, or if it did change, the thought was that other people would then have to actually renounce basically who they were, everything about themselves, uh, and, and become Jewish. Like, that was the thought. Like, you had to be Jewish in order to be saved. So if you weren't Jewish, either you were just 
out of luck. Or you had to basically give up everything and, and completely change to be Jewish. And that, that's not even just, uh, we're not just talking religion at this point. Like this, there was so much more wrapped into this. All right, this meant you had to follow all of their customs, their laws, uh, all sorts of different things, including circumcision. When Jesus was doing his ministry, he primarily focused on the Jewish people. But he did have a few moments where he uh, majorly crossed ethnic and social barriers to minister to non-Jews or what they refer to as Gentiles. All right, the word Gentile just simply refers to anyone who isn't Jewish. To the Jewish people, there are two types of people in the world. Jewish people and Gentiles. It was a very easy breakdown for them. So Jesus' main disciples, his earliest followers, the early church, started off still mainly focusing on the Jewish people. Even though Jesus had given them instruction to move beyond that group, they were a little bit stuck. All right, so here comes Paul or Saul, uh, and he is the most legalistic Jew that you could imagine. He is all about God's people, and keeping them holy. He is hyper-focused on the Jewish people. All right, that is why he was traveling and arresting and persecuting and killing Christians, because he saw them as leading God's people away from God. He was hyper-focused on God's people. And God tells Ananias that Paul is his chosen instrument to reach the Gentiles. Does that seem a little weird? Like, this person that's hyper-focused on Israelites is the one that is being picked to reach the Gentiles, okay? So it would be like this. It would be like uh, if the Minnesota Vikings were really struggling with their offense. All right, now you really have to imagine this, right? Okay? Aaron is like, she's, she's going to have words with me afterwards. She's a massive Vikings fan. All right, uh, if they're really struggling with their offense... Uh, and, and they're really, really struggling to move the ball forward to score. So their big plan is to hire a defensive coordinator and bring them in to run the offense. Right? You'd just be like, you'd look at that and you'd be like, wait a minute. No, that's backwards. That's wrong. What are you, what are you doing here? And this is kind of when you look at, at Paul or Saul and God saying, he is my chosen instrument to reach the Gentiles. You'd be like, wait a minute. You're, I think you're picking the wrong guy. All right? And, and it, it just doesn't make sense. It seems like the wrong guy for the job that needs to be done. But he's God. He doesn't have to make sense. And in fact, ends up being the perfect guy for the job because of his background. All right, so Paul has been chosen. Paul has gone through this transformative moment with Jesus and another believer. Paul spends a few years being discipled and preaching in synagogues and growing the problem in the midst of all this is all the main leaders in the early church are still mainly just focused on the Jewish people. The idea of reaching Gentiles is not really on their radar. Okay? Now, I, I feel like we need to understand a bit of the relationship between Jews and Gentiles before we move on. Okay? We, we've talked about this before. But Jewish people saw themselves as this special, set-apart group. God had wanted them to follow him not to be influenced by cultures around them. Because of that, there were some things put in place to try and limit how much they would be influenced by others. How many of you guys know this? There's different seasons of your life where you can maybe, you are strong enough to spend time with certain people and other times where you aren't. I had that in high school. I had to walk away from a group of friends because I realized I was being influenced and being drugged down a different path that I shouldn't be going down. All right, I walked away 
And now later on in life, I was actually able to walk back and be in friendship and relationship with them because I was at a point where I could handle it. Okay, and this is, this is what's happening with the Israelites here. God's like, I need you set apart. I need you on your own, all right? Uh, and, and they shouldn't be intermarrying with other cultures, all right? And, and we saw that in the Old Testament. So many kings started worshiping other gods that their wives worshiped. All right, and there are many food laws talking about what they should and shouldn't eat. And some of these actually were more of a health concern, but others were, once again, to help set them apart from their neighbors. And food laws actually went as far down as uh, not just what you ate, but kind of where you ate or who you ate with. Like, they were not allowed to share a table with someone who wasn't Jewish. Like, that, that's how far this went down. All right, when it was seen as when you sat at a table with somebody to eat a meal, that this is essentially family. Like, this is an intimate moment where you grow closer to each other. All right, but can you imagine how after more than a thousand years of doing this, of this set-apart thing and being your own little secluded group and you can't be influenced by others, after a thousand years of this happening, all right, it creates an underlying racism and prejudice towards anyone who isn't Jewish. And Jesus actually pokes fun at how much most Jewish people would, ha would have thought like this. Okay, Th this passage used to give me a lot of trouble. Matthew 15 and Mark 7, Jesus talks to the crowd and it's very intentional what is in order here. He's talking to them about inner purity. He's talking to the Pharisees. And he brought up the laws of like ceremonial hand washing before you eat. And they were upset. They said, Jesus, why don't your disciples do this? And he talks about how it isn't what goes into your mouth that makes you unclean. It's not necessarily what type of meat or whether you wash your hands a certain way. That's not what makes you unclean. He says what comes out of your mouth is a reflection of what's in your heart. So the way you talk to people, the way you talk about people, like this is what Jesus is getting at. So he's, he's discussing these types of food laws. Immediately following this story in both accounts, in Matthew and Mark, a Gentile woman approaches Jesus because her daughter is demon-possessed. And she wants Jesus to heal her daughter. But she's a Gentile. And she walks up and she's like, Jesus, please help me, please help me. And he doesn't respond. This is intentional on his part. Pretty soon his disciples turn to Jesus and they say, uh, she's bothering us. Like, will you please tell her to go away? Tell her to stop with all this begging. Okay, so Jesus is letting this play out. Can you feel the attitude that the disciples had towards this Gentile woman? All right? And Jesus could because... His, in his response, it's meant to basically say what they were thinking in his head, in their heads, okay? So Jesus says this in verse 24. Then Jesus said to the woman, I was sent only to help God's lost sheep and the people of Israel. But she came and worshiped him, pleading again, Lord, help me. Jesus responded, it isn't right to take food from the children and throw it to the dogs. Have you ever read this verse before and been like, whoa, what is happening here? Jesus just got done talking about the things that you say out of your mouth show your heart. That is such a, a, a crazy, blunt statement. But what we see here is Jesus, he, he's setting up this whole situation. He's kind of in, in himself, in a way, being the parable here. He is saying exactly what the disciples were thinking. You can imagine as he says this, they're like, yeah, yeah. You get her, Jesus. 
We, we don't have time for this. Right? Like you can just see this. And, and he's like, so he says this. And she comes back. She replied, that's true, Lord. But even dogs are allowed to eat the scraps that fall beneath their master's table. Dear woman, Jesus said to her, your faith is great. Your request is granted. And her daughter was instantly healed. You see, Jesus flipped that really quickly because he's not about to just leave her out to dry in that moment. All right, but, but the point had been made. And to say, like, your faith is great. Like, Jesus is now building her up in front of all the disciples who just got done being like, oh, yeah, Jesus, that was great. All right, so can we feel the attitude the Jewish people had towards the Gentiles? This was Jesus' disciples, his closest followers, and they had this attitude. All right, so this is what we need to understand here as we go into our story today. All right, and because this attitude was still present in the early church at this point. And this was just towards Gentiles. If the Gentiles or non-Jews were also Roman, that added a whole nother layer to this because Rome was the occupying force at that time. All right, so if you were a Gentile and you were Roman, you could imagine you have just dropped way down in their eyes. All right? A big part of God's plan for Paul was for Paul to change this thinking. Because if the most Jewish-focused, Israel-centered guy could change his mind about this, then anybody could. Like, he takes the furthest one away and says, okay, this person that seems like the absolute wrong person to pick for this job, I'm going to pick him and I'm going to show you if he can do it, anybody can. All right? So God begins to work on Peter as well, who is the most influential person at this point in the early church. I say all this to set up our story. All right, I'm going to do a lot of paraphrasing here. We're going, to, we're going to go through this. So Acts 10 opens with a man named Cornelius in Caesarea. And Cornelius is a Roman officer or centurion. All right, so right off the bat, you should, when you read this, you should be feeling, wow. This guy, not only is he a Gentile, not only is he Roman, he is an officer. He is leading this area. And he also, though, is a devout, God-fearing, generous, well-respected man. It says he gives to the poor and he prays often. Well, a messenger from God comes to him, affirms all that Cornelius has been doing, and says, send for a man named Peter who is in the town of Joppa. All right, so he is up in Caesarea. Peter is down in Joppa. You'll see this kind of on the map here behind us. All right. So Cornelius does this. He sends, sends some guys down there. Meanwhile, the next day, Peter is waiting for lunch. Uh, he's getting hungry. People are preparing it for him. He decides to go up on the roof and pray while he waits. And Peter also has a vision. All right, so in this story, we have two people, kind of this double vision happening again. This just happened with Paul and Ananias as well. So we see, like, God is absolutely working in these situations, uh, bringing these things together. All right, so in Peter's vision, there is this big sheet that comes down, and inside the sheet is all sorts of different animals, reptiles, and birds. All right, understand, these animals were considered unclean. Animals that they would never dream of eating. If you touched one of these animals, or, or ate them, and then took part in sacrifices to God you would be cut off from the Israelite people. 
Like these were the laws. You go back in Leviticus and read this. If you were unclean and then you worshipped God, essentially what that meant here is you would go to hell. Right? Like if you, if you want to understand the strongness of this unclean thing here, you were cut off from the people. And remember, being part of that group of people is how you were saved. You were now cut off from them. So this is what's happening. Peter has this vision, all of these unclean animals. And verse 13, it says, Then a voice said to him, Get up, Peter, kill and eat them. No, Lord, Peter declared, I've never eaten anything that our Jewish laws have declared impure or and unclean. But the voice spoke again, Do not call something unclean if God has made it clean. The same vision was repeated three times. Then the sheet was suddenly pulled up to heaven. So here's the thing. God is not denying that these animals were considered unclean. He isn't saying you've got it wrong. God is the one that instituted those laws. Right? Go back to Leviticus. God is the one that did this. Instead, and this is important, God is saying, I have taken something that was once unclean and I have made it clean. That is different. That is different. That is God having a transformative moment here. And so he says, I've taken something that is unclean. I've made it clean. Do not call it unclean. All right? God didn't tell Peter to do anything to the animals to make them clean. He didn't say, if you go take this animal and you do this and you walk it around a house seven times and give it a bath in this river. That sounds weird, but I mean, uh, let's be honest. That, those are the types of things that happen in the Old Testament. All right? And uh, he didn't say that, and now all of a sudden it's clean. God's like, I did it. You didn't do it. I did it. And there's a difference there because God has been redeeming things. God is making a shift here. It's a shift in what his relationship with people look like. And this should make sense because all of Jesus' followers know that a change has been made in how they approach God. God was changing what their relationship looked like. This isn't God changing though. This isn't God didn't change his mind here. The relationship is changing. All right, what's going on with food here would be like, uh, let's say you're downtown. Okay, I, I have a, a seven, six, and three-year-old. Let's say they're on the other side of the road downtown. And they want to come across the road to me. And I look, and there's a vehicle that's coming. And I say, hey, stop. Wait, don't cross. Don't, don't take one step onto that road. The car goes by. I look. It's clear. Hey, come across the road to me. All right, now, did I change my mind? Did I think that... Uh, it, it was bad to cross the road, and now it's not bad to cross the road. It, no, it's, it was this situational moment that was happening there. And God, with so many of these laws that he had for the Israelites, these were situational moments, okay? And what he is saying is at that time, you needed to wait. That was the correct thing for that time. At this time, I need you to move, okay? At that time, these things were unclean. At this time, I've made them clean. At that time, those people, you should not interact with them. I now am making it so that you should be. You should be loving them. You should be engaging with them. All right? Like, th this is the picture that we need to see here. All right? And if Peter having this vision wasn't enough, it says he actually had the vision repeated three times. God wanted to make sure he got this and it stuck. All right? Now, what's great here is Peter seems to know that this vision is bigger than just food. Because the next few verses, they won't be on the screen, but what it says is it says he is perplexed and wondered what the vision meant. If it was just food, you would probably know that. He realizes, okay, this might have to do with food. There might be more to this. Just then, the men from Cornelius show up. Ding, ding, ding. 
all right? To make sure Peter doesn't miss this jump, that the vision means more than just food, the Holy Spirit tells Peter, I have sent these men, go with them without hesitation. All right, normally at this time, there would be massive hesitation for a leader of the church to go with two Gentiles and a Roman guard when persecution is high and people are being killed. So after talking to them, Peter goes with to Caesarea, goes to the home of Cornelius. Cornelius calls on all of his family, his household, and his close friends. Peter gets there. Cornelius starts worshiping Peter. Peter pulls him up, and he's like, I'm human just like you. Peter goes into the home with Cornelius to where everyone is, and Peter says, you know, it is against our laws for me to enter this home or even associate with you. So this was still fresh in Peter's mind. He realizes that it's against our laws for me to be doing this. But God showed me to change my thinking on this. Cornelius tells Peter about the messenger from God and the vision he had. It says this in verse 34, Then Peter replied, I see very clearly that God shows no favoritism. In every nation he accepts those who fear him and do what is right. Peter then begins to share the good news about the kingdom of Jesus. It's always interesting when someone shares the good news, there's almost always a specific kind of slant that they take, whether that's spirit-inspired or they just strategically know how to speak to somebody and reach them right where they're at. Uh, like in this one, when he's talking to Cornelius, uh, the thing that he says is there is peace through Jesus. One of the first things he says. Can you imagine saying that to an occupying soldier who is in charge of this part of the army? And he says there's peace through Jesus. Not war, there's peace. You can see the inspiration here of the Spirit. As Peter finishes talking to, the Holy, talking to them, the Holy Spirit falls on Cornelius and his family. They begin to speak in tongues, and Peter and the other believers are amazed. All right? With this receiving of the Holy Spirit, there was no doubt that they had just as much right to the same new relationship with God that the Jewish people did. Another way of putting this is that the, the Gentiles were now considered clean and part of the family. Not because they did anything to make themselves clean, they didn't keep the Jewish law or get circumcised, anything like that. But God said they were clean. So Peter has them baptized, which means they are part of the family. As baptism was symbolic of bringing them into the family. Peter goes back to the community of believers. And they are upset about what Peter has done. This is, we're getting into chapter 11 here. Bringing Gentiles in. Like they, they are mad and they're like, Peter, you better explain yourself. Peter explains everything, tells the whole story. They agree and say clearly this is what God wanted and they celebrate. All right, and this sets the table for what Paul will begin to do with bringing the good news of Jesus to Gentiles all over. But this also isn't the last we see of the argument and disagreement in the early church of whether or not Gentiles needed to also become part of the Jewish family to be part of the family of God. This will ring true through like the rest of the New Testament. There are arguments of, no, you need to keep these laws. You need to follow these things. You need to tick these boxes. You need to do it the way that we do it. Like that, This is an argument that happens through the entire New Testament. It had been that way for thousands of years, and they just couldn't quite shake that. But that, that's just how it goes, isn't it? Like, we always want to add our own requirements onto what it means to follow God. That's one of the hardest things that has been happening for, for years and years and years. We add our requirements on there. 
all right? God makes it so easy to come to him. And then we go and make it way more difficult than it should be. We say, you need to do this, or you need to go to this class, or keep this rule, or attend this service this often, or recite this specific prayer. And we add all these things in there. And even as I say those things, I expect that some in the room would raise objections to something that I just said, all right, in some of the minds. And that's good, because there should be a constant tension here. This is not something we can just solve. This idea of God's saving grace being a gift that we cannot earn, and yet in order to truly accept that gift, we must completely surrender to God. All right, think about surrender. Surrender always has clauses attached to it. Right? Like if, I, if I'm in a war and I say, okay, I surrender, but hey, I, I want to I keep my gun. And, and I, might, I might shoot a few people on your side. What? No, that's not surrender. You waved the white flag. You said, I'm giving it up. We set the terms of this. Like, and, and there is this with, with God. He says, you're going to surrender to me. I am king. I am Lord. I need to be Lord of your life. But how many times do we say, God, I surrender because we want something from God, but we aren't willing to completely and ultimately surrender everything to him. And that's where the tension of faith versus what people would say works comes in. Because depending on how you classify that, there's a lot of surrender that probably gets classified and looks like works. And so we struggle with that. And the reality is, I think that's okay. I think we should to an extent. There should always be a little bit of this tension of like, I, I can't do anything to receive salvation beyond just, it's a free gift from God, yet the other side of that coin is surrender, completely, ultimately surrender. And it's hard. It's hard. This same idea runs the rest of the New Testament. There seems to be moments where it almost contradicts itself. You have the book of Romans that's very heavy on faith. You have the book of James that talks about what are you doing with your works, with your fruit? Are you, are you showing this? And, and if you didn't know this, back when they were putting the Bible together, when they were canonizing the Bible, the book of James almost didn't make it in. The book of James was, was one of them that was the closest. There's a few of them that were kind of on that cut list, and they just made it in. And the book of James was one of those because people felt like it almost contradicted Romans and that it talked too much about works. But in the book of James, it talks about that. Like, if you walk up and say, hey, how's it going? Stay warm. And they don't have a jacket and it's winter and you just walk away. Hey, have a good day. He's like, what is that? If you truly surrendered to God, if you ultimately gave everything to him, if everything was his and you see someone in need, you would give to someone in need. All right, so all this, this is great. How does this apply to us today? What are we supposed to be taking from this story, right? That, that, that's the, the million-dollar question every single time we open the Bible, every time we hear from God. And the really cool thing about the Bible and about learning together in community like this uh, is that God could be speaking something different to every single person in the room today. You maybe already are starting to feel something that God's leading you towards, and it might not be the same as anybody else in the room. All right, and, that, and that's fine, I, and I think that that's good. But at the same time, I think it is important and necessary for us to move as a group as we move as individuals. 
and to have a little bit of something that's like all of us are coming together and saying, this, we need to work on this. All right, that's what it means to be part of a body. Everything moves. If a person starts walking down the street and their toe is still back there, that is called a severed toe and is never a good thing. All right, your toes should stay on your feet and move with you. Okay, if we are moving as a body and someone's like, nah, I'm going to stay back here. Don't be a severed toe. All right, just stay on the foot. Okay, so, so here, here's where this goes. All right. I think there's a big idea that comes from this passage that is good for all of us to reflect on as a community. And, and, and this is the question for us. How often is our potential ministry held back because of the preconceived ideas that we hold? This could be your individual potential ministry of how God wants to use you. This could be us as a church. There are some ways that Peter never thought that he would be used by God. All right, I, I don't think he ever thought that he would reach people by having like a luau party with a big roasted pig. Okay? And, and I, we don't have any proof that he did that, that. I don't think he did. But the idea of like pig, they don't eat that. There, there's, there's like, no, nope, I couldn't ever do that. If someone would say, hey, I know how we reach the Gentiles, let's do this. Everyone in the room would be like, not a chance. I think that there, the idea of just even Jewish people reaching others by having a meal with them, that was unthought of. That was unthought of. Food is, is like the best way to get to know somebody. And share your life. How many of you guys agree with that? I'm just like, I, I'm wholeheartedly like, food is just the best way to do it. Conversations without food are never as comfortable as conversations with food. Okay, take an uncomfortable situation. Now give me a bowl of popcorn or a bowl of chips. And it is less uncomfortable. For me, at least. They're going to like hear me chomping on chips the whole time and that's fine. But like just food, like it just, it breaks the tension. There's something, I, I think the Israelites were right about the idea that when you come together, you share a meal, there is something much more intimate about that. There, there's this, uh, this program called Alpha. It's a video series that's used worldwide to start discussions between people who, who don't believe in God or have like big questions about God. Uh, and in their training, they say every single one of these sessions should always start with a meal. Like, that's one of the things they are super, like, now, obviously, they aren't going around the world and be like, you need to eat food. Stop it. Like, they, they aren't, like, policing this. But that is, when you go through the training of this, they are like, please, 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 start with food. Start with a meal. They understand this idea. There is just this familiarity that comes when you share a meal together. And the early church never saw themselves doing this with people that weren't Jewish, even though it was part of God's plan. They thought everyone else first had to become like them. Think about how often churches or Christians want other people to first become like them before they start sharing their lives with them. Maybe you've been to a church like that where you walk in and right away you know that you don't really belong there. At least not yet. First, you need to do this, 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 and this. First, you need to start dressing this way. You need to start talking this way. You need to start doing something like, there are these, these things that are put up in front of you. People say, like, you can come to our church, 
but secretly you need to follow all of our unspoken cultural rules. Show up at a certain time, all right? Wear these clothes, don't wear these, take your hat off, don't have tattoos, look this way, be from a certain ethnic background, carry the same values that I have in the world, vote the same way that I vote, speak the way that I speak. We never actually write these rules out, but so many people lived based on these ideas and do ministry based off of these. Or another way that we might get held back by preconceived ideas is that we think that that God could never use us individually in a certain way. Right? Like, we're we're like, I I don't, you know, the talents that we have, the way that God can use us, like, I, I don't think God's capable of using me to do that. I could never speak in front of people. I could never share my faith. I I couldn't have the patience to work with that type of ministry. I couldn't give up everything I have here and move halfway across the world to reach a different culture. How many of us have said that? How many times have we been up here with missionaries and we said, we believe there are people in this room. This is your call in life. To sell what you have, to leave here, to go somewhere else. All right, how many of you guys, as you hear that, you're like, Not me. Not me. Maybe before we ever even stop and ask God, God, is it me? Is that what you want? We have these preconceived ideas that hinder the the ability that we have to be used by God. As a church, we need to be focused on God's mission not how we have previously accomplished that mission. All right, like we need to allow God to break the mold that we currently have. All right, here's a way of saying it. Like we are married to the mission, not the method. Right? The mission that God has called us to, we never want to abandon that. Now the way that we actually do that, that can change. I'll tell you right now, when churches and Christians and people get stuck in the way that we do things, very quickly you become ineffective. We have to be open to what God wants to do. All right, let's stand across the room as we close. When uh, my wife Emily and I uh, were in London, previously just, I don't even know what it was now, a month ago. A month ago we were in London And we went to Westminster Abbey. Uh, And and I don't know if you know this. I didn't. I'm not a history person like my wife is. But there's all sorts of people buried there. And it's actually kind of weird and awkward because as you walk through the place, you're just walking on graves. Like there are stones in the floor and it says, here lies Isaac Newton. You're like, oh, great. Walked on Isaac Newton's face today. You know, like it's just like one of those weird things. Um, one of the graves that we saw, though, was uh, David Livingston. All right, maybe you've been familiar with this name. I took a picture of it as I was sitting there looking at this. David grew up in Scotland with six siblings. His dad taught Sunday school and sold tea door-to-door. David started working in a cotton mill at age 10, and he worked 12 to 14-hour days. Some of you guys thought you worked hard. 10 years old, 12 to 14-hour days. David loved to read. He read all sorts of theology books, and he loved them. Uh, But he also loved scouring the countryside for plants, animals, all sorts of things, everything science. Like, he loved that. He started reading different science things. 
And his dad, who was a Sunday school teacher, his dad feared that science and faith couldn't be reconciled and that science was undermining any Christian beliefs that David had. So he tried to push him away from it. But as David grew and as he read, he was not only to able to reconcile his faith in science, but actually saw a great way of allowing the one to push and further the other. When he was 21, David got a pamphlet put out by a kind of a, a cutting-edge, well-known missionary to China, calling for more missionaries who would be trained as medical doctors, bringing Jesus to people in the name of science. He went on to establish routes, David did, that future missionaries could travel. He never ended up going to China. He went to Africa. And he mapped out a massive part of Africa. And he'd go to local villages and he'd bring Jesus with him. And he, he helped villages find resources that they could utilize. And then really, uh, he, he was a massive part in helping fight slavery in Britain at that time. Like this man accomplished pretty massive things. He laid groundwork that people are still feeling today. And all things that if he would have kept preconceived ideas of God, couldn't use modern science, would have been missed. I can't help but wonder the amount of dreams God has for how to use us if we would only remove the barriers that we ourselves have placed in front of us. So how can we be open to God moving? How can you be open to God moving you in a direction that is not on your radar at all right now? Are you open to that? Like, do you truly walk in here on a Sunday or, or any time or every day when you wake up, do you go to God? Do you take everything in your life, everything, and lay it on an altar at his feet and say, what do you want? What areas are you holding back? What things are you saying, God, you could never use me in this way? Because you have a preconceived idea of what it looks like for God to use you or to use anybody. What ways are we as a church failing and falling short because we have preconceived ideas of how we have to do this? I mean, I know there probably are many ways if we sat down and dug through everything we do as a church, we would find areas where we're doing it simply because it's how we've done it. There are dreams that are placed in, in hearts here. So you have no clue how to do it because no one has done it before. That's why God gave you that dream, right? Like follow in the steps of David Livingston. No one had done before what he had done. He went and charted, literally charted a new route. Charted a new route and people since then have been following this. They, they have built on his foundation, all right? And if you begin to go through this, I wanna just say this. If you begin to go through a, a shift, if you have this transformative moment like what Peter did, people around you will not always understand it. They won't. 
People that are really close to you, close friends, family, they won't always understand it. When Peter gets back to the other disciples, to the leaders of the church, they didn't understand it. He had to defend himself. He had to say, this is why. And actually, he didn't really even defend himself. He just pointed to what God did as his defense. And that, that's the best way to do it. All right, so just realize, if God begins to move you in a new direction, there are going to be people in your life that they don't get it. And they're going to say, I don't think this is what you're supposed to do. If it's someone you trust, okay, take a moment and pray. Maybe they're right. But if God's leading you there, he's going to confirm that over and over again. Let's pray. Let's pray as we close here today. God, I pray for the uh, unrealized, unacted on dreams that are in this room. God, things that you have, you have put deep into people's hearts, that they have this idea uh, of, I just, I think that we could be doing this. I think I should be doing this. I could be reaching this type of person. I could be doing this type of a thing. But they just are, they're scared. They don't know how to do it. They don't know what it would look like. They don't know what it would cost them. God, I pray that we would remove our preconceived ideas. We would just trust you. We would lay everything at your feet. We say, God, how do, how do we need to change? Where do you want us to be going? How are you leading us? So God, I pray that, that today, that in this moment, that this week, Lord, that things would stir up in our hearts and stir up in our lives. God, that we would, we would begin to, to potentially see a new way of following you. That doesn't mean that we are forsaking things from you, God. But we just want to be sensitive to where you are moving us. If you're here today and you feel like you want to take a step into a relationship with God, and that's a new thing for you, you haven't done that before, you don't know what's next, or you just feel stuck, you don't know what to do. Those connect cards that Pastor Aaron was talking about, on the back there's two boxes. One says, I want to follow Jesus. If you've never done that before, I would love for you to write your name on the front, check that, drop it in the box. If you feel like you're stuck, you don't know what to do next, but you want to do something, there's a box that just says, what are my next steps? Check that. Drop it in with your name. We want to follow up. We want to be there with you. We want to give you resources. We want to, we want to walk with you through this, okay? You're not alone. You're not doing this on your own. God, we thank you for the ways that you just are. You're speaking to us. You're challenging us. Give us the strength to follow through on this, Lord. As we scatter today, let us just bring your good news with us everywhere that we go. We ask this in your name. Amen.